0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. It's up in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you're visiting Christ Church this morning, my name's Mark uh, I have the privilege of being one of the ministers and we're glad you're with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be unveiling over the next three weeks the vision uh, for our church going forward and they're excited that you get to be a part of that as well as those who attend here regularly uh, get to hear where we think God's leading us and uh, how that works together. Uh, as you're opening your Bibles to Genesis 3 and making your sacrifices so that the kingdom can expand here and throughout the world, we're grateful for that. Uh, There was a young man who went to a McDonald's one afternoon to get something to eat, and he he saw an elderly couple sitting down at the table next to him, and they had on their tray just a hamburger, french fries, a soft drink, and an extra cup. And he watched this elderly couple. He thought they were cute, and and they sat down, and the, uh, the gentleman took the cup, and he poured half of the... Of the soda into one cup and gave it to his wife, and then he took the hamburger and cut it in half and gave her a half. And he took all the French fries, spread them out on the tray, divided them up fairly evenly, and gave her some, and he kept the rest. This man saw this couple and thought it was cute, but he thought, well, maybe they just don't have enough for a whole meal, so he went up and bought another hamburger, French fries, and a cup for a soft drink. And he took it over to the table and he sat it down next to him. He said, "Here, I'd like to buy you lunch." And the man was the, the elderly man was a little bit embarrassed and he blushed and he said. Oh no, but thank you, it's very kind He said, we've been uh, married for 60 years And everything we've ever had, we've shared 50-50 And, and uh, it's kind of you, but we don't, we don't need all of that food and, and the young man who was moved even more by that But it was a little bit awkward He looked at the wife and who was watching her husband eat his lunch And she said, are you, are you not going to eat? And she replied, I will when he gives me the teeth <laughs> Okay, all right That was risky, that really was. I'm glad you guys are with me this morning. Today we're going to talk about being together, for each other, sharing. That's how I'm going to make that sound like it fit. Okay. Uh, There was a psychotherapist named Viktor Frankl. Frankl and his family were taken to the concentration camps because they were Jewish, and all but he and his sister passed away in the concentration camps. While in there, he noticed something. And he observed it and survived it, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he noticed that there were some people that could handle uh, the the trials and the suffering of the concentration camp. Some of them were brutalized, they'd lost all human dignity, but they survived. They They had an outlook on life that allowed them to prosper even in the midst of the worst suffering possible. Then he saw other people who didn't suffer as much. They didn't go under the physical and emotional turmoil. But he coined a term, they died before they were killed. Because something in them didn't have purpose, they could not live through whatever suffering, even a minimal amount. And from that experience, he developed a school of psychology that deals with a man or a person's meaning and how having a meaning bigger than their circumstances allowed them to thrive and those without a meaning greater than their circumstances don't survive. Frankel recognized that everybody has a guiding purpose. Everybody has a personal mission. Whether it's implicit or explicit, that ultimate aim allows them to be successful or not. And if you look in, in America and what we're taught, you see it on television, you see it in the movies, you hear it talked about in social circles that the highest mission in life in America is to be comfortable, both financially and in your surroundings, to be comfortable professionally successful, and to have a good family. So if you're comfortable and have what you think you need to be that, you're successful at what you spend your time doing, and you're surrounded by people in your family who love you, that that's that's your purpose. That's your personal mission. So what's wrong with that? Well, I'm not suggesting anything is inherently wrong with it, except it leads us to the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author of Ecclesiastes said, You can have all the money and all the friends and all the esteem and all the fame, but if you die anyway, so what? If we all are going to die and the suffering that takes place in life up to the journey of death, is that the end game? Is to have had a good run, to been comfortable, successful, and had good family? You see, what Frankel realizes, a selfish purpose does not stand up to the test of suffering. It does not stand up to when things don't work out the way you thought they would work out. If you base your life on making sure things are comfortable, convenient, and safe, what happens when they're not? And I think we can say this, if you, I, I keep lowering the number, but if you're over the age of 10, you've lost some enchantment with this world, haven't you? If you've lived any period of time, you realize it doesn't always work out the way it should. Uh, Let me just, a more graphic expression. When life punches you in the throat and you can't breathe or think, you can't swallow and your eyes fill with tears and you're rocked by the suddenness of this impact that shocks your entire existence, how does comfort help you? How does success help you? How does being surrounded by good family allow you to have a purpose bigger than your circumstances? Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount that there are two foundations you build your life on. One's made of rock and it cannot be diminished by a storm and one is made of sand and it will be moved because of storms. What do we do when the storms come? And they will. Frankel realized that those that served a purpose bigger than their own comfort They served something bigger than their own control, survived, even thrived. And those who did not have a purpose bigger than their own comfort and their own control were devastated, and some died before they were killed. You see, every single one of us has a personal purpose we live for. And I'm not going to ask you to expose it. It'll, it'll, It'll come in time. But we're all after this security and this comfort and this prestige. We're after something because we believe deep down inside. If I have this one thing, enough money, enough friends, enough, uh, if I have whatever it is that I base my security on, then when the world comes after me, this will keep me safe. And Jesus said it won't. It won't. When the storms come, your foundation will be proven or disproven. And when it's disproven, it's fairly devastating. devastating. You see, what I want you to know today is you are a follower of Jesus, and I'm always talking to those of us who have chosen to say that Jesus Christ is who exactly who he said he was, and because of that, we give our lives to him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been saved for a purpose. It's bigger than your personal mission. It's a kingdom purpose. And it is the enjoyment of God in the spread of the gospel. It is enjoying God by promoting God in each and every area of people's lives. It's not just enjoying God. That's selfish. It's enjoying God in the purposes of the gospel. It's a kingdom purpose. It's something that can get you through suffering and suffering will occur. It gets you through difficulties. It gets you through broken relationships. It gets you through the things that shake us to our core. But if we look at our world today, why do so many people have a mission in life that can't stand up to the reality of suffering or can't stand up to when when the things we invest in prove to be temporary at best? I'd like to take you to Genesis chapter 3, and I'd like to show you this, the concept of why people have a purpose that doesn't work. In verse 1, Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals in the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say. You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you, will, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are fundamental. Now, there's a disagreement as what they're fundamental towards. There are some that say if you don't believe a certain way about Genesis 1 through 3, you, miss, you won't get the gospel. And other people say if you take it the way they say it, you're going to misread the gospel. I'm here to tell you today that we're going to focus on the most important thing I find in Genesis chapter 3 and that what did we do? And why did we do it? And try to discover here two things from Genesis chapter 3. The first is this. Sin has led us into a false mission. Sin in and of itself, as defined in scripture, sin has led us to a false mission. It is the reason many of our personal missions, our personal purposes we have, will fail us over the test of time. And that they're destined to fail us. And the reason so is because Sin del- delivers no hope to overcome our self-sufficiencies. Sin offers us no hope when we're not enough. Sin offers us no hope when we fail and life isn't the fairy tale that we were born and bred to believe in. Let- let's just refer to it. I'm going to call it the lie, not a lie, but the lie. It is the lie of scripture f- or found in scripture of sin. Sin. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to Satan's interaction with Adam and Eve. And here's what the lie says. You cannot trust God. That's what the lie of every sin is. If God says, don't do it, you can't trust him, do it. If God says, do it, you'll say, no, I can't trust him. I'm not going to do it. God says, this isn't good for you. And we say, no, no, I can get away with it. You don't trust him. If God said, this is, this is, Not good, this is, or no, this is good. You need to do this. And we're like, nah, I don't need to. We're trying to enjoy God without the truth of the gospel. And it's a problem. It is the lie from the very beginning. Our intellectual struggles come down to this. Well, I believe in God, but I can't put up with all this suffering this preacher keeps talking about, that I'm going to suffer. And if God is good, then why does he allow this to happen? We put God on trial. We say God's not good and he can't be trusted. He's not wise. Because if God were really God, he would do it my way. What did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say this? And Eve said, yeah, God really said that. And he said, well, the reason God said that is because he knows that the moment you, in other words, he can't be trusted. He's, he's manipulating you. He's keeping something back from you. That if he really loved you, he would give you everything you wanted. It's our emotional problems too. God knows what I want. Why won't he let me have it? We just put God on trial. He's not good. You can't trust him. He doesn't know. He's unwise. You see, all from the beginning, for God knows, verse five. He's holding back from you. The reason he doesn't want you to do this sin is because he doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to be fulfilled. He doesn't want you to experience the best of life. He's punishing you for your sin in the past, so he's keeping you from having joy in the future. It's the lie that God's not good, and God can't be trusted. So what's the result of the lie? Since we don't trust God to meet our needs, we trust ourselves. We'll find something. We'll base our security not on our relationship with God, but we'll base our security on our money, on what kind of vehicle we drive, how we dress, what people think of us. It's been a tough two weeks around here. I've had several of you tell me that. Uh, These last two sermons have not been ones that sent you home going, yay me. Two weeks ago, Michael DeFazio took us into Luke chapter 11 and he said, the fact that some of us believe partial obedience is what Jesus deserves is a self-righteousness that fails. To say that I'm going to obey Jesus in some areas, but I'm going to keep these secret sins back here because I enjoy them. And a little something for me is not a bad thing. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees, you will not enter my kingdom. And then last week, I took you to Luke 12, and I talked to you about hypocrisy, play acting to be something you know you're not instead of becoming what you desire to be. And the last two weeks have been hard. We get it. But the teachings of Jesus are hard because they ask us the question, can I trust him? Is he wise and is he good? Or is he just in my business trying to mess my life up? Eve turned away from the goodness and wisdom of God to find something that would make her feel secure. So she grabbed the fruit and you sit here with me today and I do it too. And I think I've never eaten that fruit. No, no, I don't need that tree. I got my own little things over here. I don't know no one else is supposed to do this, but I just think God loves me more than he loves all of you. So I get away with it. Pluck the fruit, take a bite. It's the result of the lie. We all are looking for wisdom, power, and security. And if you look for it outside of Jesus, you're going to end up less secure, not very wise, and have no real power. I have a list here of things that people, and even myself, have based my life on in the past. I'm going to be spouse-focused. If my wife is happy and content, and she loves me and she respects me, and and we're getting along and our home is is safe and peaceful, then, then that's going to be my security until it's not. And as much as I have a wonderful bride... There's days she doesn't like me and days we don't get along and days she's not happy and content and days she's struggling too. So my security is always kept on a personality or I put it on my children. If they're, if they're good in school and they're good athletes and they get good scholarships and, and they have all these things accomplished and then what if they're not? I can't control that. So my security is on something that's not lasting and can't be controlled or work-focused, or money-focused, or pleasure-focused. We know we could go on and on. We, bear, we ask things to bear the weight of our security and our hope that cannot bear the weight of it. And when cancer comes, and divorce comes, and fights come, and attitudes come, and fatigue comes, and, and poverty comes, it wipes out everything that we think makes a good life and then thinks, what's with this life? It's difficult. Because our joy and our purpose and our peace have never been and never will be under our control. They will always be under Jesus' control. He's the only thing that's going to survive the storms. He's the only one who can give us real hope in a dead and dying world. I'm going to ask a question. I'm only going to ask you to raise your hand to testify, and I'm going to ask you not to answer my question so I see you, but to raise it as a testimony in this room that this is who you are. So let me ask the question, because I believe it's the premise of what I'm talking about today. How many of us have realized today that we are here, truly here in worship, because the realities of living our lives by our own control failed us, were proved inadequate, and left us desperate, and the only hope we had was Jesus. So it's not a group of put-together people who got it all figured out. It's not a group of people who just have had charmed lives, and so because of that, why not add church? No, it's actually a group of people who have tried everything the world offers. We bit the fruit, tasted the lie, and we didn't like it, did we? And we realize the only hope we really have is the grace of Jesus Christ and his power over sin and death. It's the only hope we have. Sin makes us think, I can't trust God, he's going to manipulate me. And sin replaces God with a mission that's doomed to fail. And this is exactly what Satan wanted from the beginning. Get us to question God, and we won't question anything else. And it will lead to our destruction. You see, sin has led us into a false mission. And secondly, God shows us a truth mission that will meet any test in this life. A truth mission. The false mission is you can't trust God. And Jesus said, I'm going to show you you can trust God because I'm here because of God. And I'm the solution to all of your problems. Look at verses 14 and 15. God has come down and punished Adam and Eve. And that's what happens before this. And after confronting Adam and Eve for their act of rebellion, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God looks at Satan and he says, I'm going to fix this. And I am going to expose the lie. And the lie is going to be exposed through Jesus. He said, I'm going to send one who's going to undo what you've done. And for all of us who have eaten the fruit, we bought the lie, we've tasted the lie, and it's made us bitter and angry and hopeless and, and desperate. We're on our knees crying out, what can I do to overcome the fact that I bought the lie? I didn't believe God was wise. I didn't believe God that was good. And I became my own God and I'm failing. My life is a mess. And then suffering is added and difficulties with people are added and I'm overwhelmed and life's not worth living. And what happens then? God says, I'm going to expose the lie by sending someone, my son, who's going to come between what the woman and the serpent concluded. He's going to change it. I will put enmity as the word. I'm going to bring something against the lie that will bring a solution to the lie. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 8 is speaking to a group of people that are arguing with him about what he was doing. And in John 8, Jesus even refers to the lie. Look at what it says. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, now I'm here. Genesis 3.15, the promise. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. The one who we question whether he's good acted in goodness toward us when we acted in rebellion against him. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you, just, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. You see, Jesus is offering an opportunity. Remember, repentance is not just our behavior. Repentance is our mind. We change our thinking about what we're thinking. And Jesus was saying, you can't hear me for what I'm telling you. I came to expose that you are, your self-righteousness won't save you. But you keep saying, well, who are you? You're self-righteous. And Jesus is like, listen, the Father sent me to expose the lie so that you could find life. And there wasn't a person he was talking to that life wasn't available to. The grace was available to every single one of us. So for some of us today, we just need to repent because we bought into the fact if we have the right money and the right house and we have the right job and we have the right friends and we have all these right things, that that's going to give us our security. That is our personal purpose, but it's not our kingdom purpose. Our kingdom purpose is to share the gospel because we enjoy the relationship with the Father. See, this the lie makes us unable to hear the hope that Jesus offers because I'm good. I'm good, honestly. I got enough. I got enough of the things that make me comfortable. I don't need any more. And so I'm good. And, And the frustration for many of us in trying to share the gospel with someone is we offer it one time and we find them in a moment that they're good. And then later when they're not good, we've abandoned them. I don't think we're supposed to be vultures, but there's an opportunity When life punches someone in the throat and they can't breathe, they can't swallow, their eyes are full of tears and their heart's full of fear, that's the perfect moment that the hope of Jesus Christ can redeem somebody who's going under and doesn't know how to save themselves. And this is why the church exists. It's in our philosophies of today. You create your own meaning. You create your own happiness. You create your own purpose. I'll tell you that Jesus, who's very wise told us that that doesn't work, because you can't save yourself, and only he can protect us, only he can provide for us. So God not only exposes the lie, but God destroys the power of the lie. So he sent Jesus, and Jesus created a called people. Like God called Abraham and said, your offspring will bring a great nation. Jesus came and called a new nation of believers in the power of the gospel who would go into all the world and preach it and I don't mean professionally preach it, I mean they would offer a a counterbalance to the lie that you are your own savior, that you are your own security, that you can protect yourself. Jesus said, no, give them hope. Give them hope that what happened on the cross and what happened because of the empty tomb is all that they need, that Jesus is enough. Now read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Hebrews, and you're gonna uncover that in the New Testament, they've been trying to tell us for centuries, Jesus is all we need. You don't need Jesus in money. You don't need Jesus in sex. You don't need Jesus in marriage. You don't need Jesus in in successful business. You need Jesus because he counterbalanced everything we lost in Genesis 3. Nature, disease, death, spiritual power, all of that according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the book of Hebrews. All of those things are restored in Jesus Christ himself. In fact, the book of Colossians says he's, he's it. He holds it all together. Nothing more, nothing to be added. If our kingdom mission is to reveal the lie and find healing and life in God alone, and I believe it is, then we're here for a purpose. It's a purpose bigger than being comfortable, successful, and surrounded by good family. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been saved for a purpose, the enjoyment of the God in the spread of the gospel. So our mission in life is not only make Jesus our meaning and our purpose, but to show other people how to break free from the lie. Now, I realize this is heavy. So this isn't me, like, going off. This is me being desperate with my church family, the people that I worship with and I'm in community with. And I'm telling us, for some of us, the lie still lingers. Jesus and, Jesus and. I'm going to give Jesus this, and and I'm going to hold on to this. And I'm telling you that unless you abandon your own self-security, you're living in self-righteousness. And as in Jesus day when you preach the gospel that Jesus wants your heart some people walk away it's too much don't don't believe the lie don't believe that you need anything more than Jesus to be everything you've ever wanted to be you see our mission as a church is why Christ church exists it's not to be slick or cool or big or anything else we exist to bring the truth out about the lie and to help people overcome the lie by living in the hope of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. The story of Christ Church of Ornogo is a very small story, 64 years in the making. A small story in a large book, a small chapter, if you will, in the large story of the gospel. And we're not going to be famous, and I bet you we don't even show up in the index. We're a brief moment in time, a group of people who chose to love Jesus to get rid of the lie and believe the truth and offer it to those we encounter. See, nine years ago when this church contacted and asked me and gave me the privilege of being a part of this, this congregation, uh, I didn't know much about it. In fact, I was pretty messed up, pretty wounded at the time. And I'm thinking, I don't know that I should be doing ministry. And they called anyway and felt sorry for me. I was like a stray puppy. They brought me in. And when I was calling around asking about this church, because I didn't know a whole lot about it, I knew several of my friends were here, and they told me good things, and I trusted them. But I I called around to find out what the community input was, and here's what I thought was amazing. They didn't say, oh, they're really great at this, or they're really fantastic at this. They certainly didn't say, they have a fantastic location. No, they didn't say that. (laughs) Mostly what they said is this church makes no sense, because it's out in the middle of nowhere and growing. And the second thing, most common thing, to be honest with you, the first thing I heard regularly, all joking aside... The leadership out here is fantastic. And being here nine years, I want to tell you that as the senior minister here on this staff, I'm not an elder. So when I use the word leadership here, I'm not passing the buck. I'm tipping my cap. Uh, I'm just one of the ministry staff. And we are led by nine elders who are amazing men. Now, imperfect, completely. (laughs) In love with Jesus, absolutely and proven. And as the senior minister here, I'm I'm absolutely willing to be in submission to these nine men. Even some that have served previously that are no longer serving, the leadership of this church has always been willing to risk everything on Jesus leading if they felt led. And I applaud that. You know, separately, separate them out, a lot of issues. Put nine of them in a room together with prayer and I've seen God move because these men are open. They're not using authority They're leading on their knees. They pray and weep for this church. They protect this church and they want to feed this church a healthy diet of truth and grace. And I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful to work under their leadership and I'm grateful for the privilege I have to be here. So when I talk to you about this vision, that this leadership has come together over the last uh, nine, uh, nine to eight or eight or nine months that we've been talking and praying about this and we came in and said, here are some indicators going on around us. We talked about it in 2012, 13, the last time we had a vision campaign. We talked about doors we thought we should walk through that God seemed to have left open for us. In fact, one of them is just a great way to celebrate. Today, and this was accidental timing, but it's awesome anyway. Today, Hope City, a church we planted four years ago, opened their first service in their brand new worship facility. We'll have over 800 people there today. And and we had so little to do with that except to bless a group of people from this church to go plant that church because we had a vision that there was a need down there And we had people from that part of the community coming out here to the farm. So we thought, let's plant them back in the city and look what's happened. Because our leadership saw a vision and said, let's risk it. And I applaud our leaders for doing this. You see, the vision of this ministry is not growing. It's not about we need to get bigger. The vision of this ministry is discipleship. That if people come here every week and hear the truth and never trust the truth, we're entertaining. But if they come and they grow, we're discipling. And so the program we have, the opportunities we have, are trying to help every single one of us. In fact, here's the vision. We believe we're here to prepare God's people to discover completeness in Jesus, to become whole in Christ, to get rid of the parts of the lie that still linger, to throw off those things that give us security that aren't secure, and to hold on to the things that are. We are geared to work with saved people and invite unsaved people into a safe community where they can know who Jesus is. You see, you can grow a church and not grow the kingdom. It's possible. You can get people to come out to an event who are no more committed to the cause of the event than just driving out here. So our goal is not to get bigger, but when things happen that we start to have growth and more people come to the family dinner, if you will, And we're looking at that saying the same indicators in 2012 and 13 that caused us to cast the vision bigger than ourselves are the same indicators that are causing us today to say, I don't think God's done with us yet. And when I look around Joplin, I'll be honest with you, people are dying for real discipling connections. People really aren't looking to go to church. I've never met anybody, I need to go to church. No, they need what the church is bringing them, hope. And you look around Joplin, there's a lot of churches. I hear it quite often. Some people go, ah, I don't know, man, there's a lot of churches in Joplin. Uh Uh-huh. But there's more unchurched people. And if every church that existed today was full to the brim this morning, there would still be 100,000 people in this greater community who don't know Jesus Christ. And so we've come to this conclusion as a church. There is not, we've not run out of people to invest in. We are not short of opportunities to share the gospel at work, at play, and together when we gather. And when we look at it, this is what we've concluded. Because of the indicators. Now, you can even look around today. There are two peak seasons in the life of the church. Let me give you a little inside baseball, okay? You can see behind the curtain and realize Oz is just a guy. But let me tell you, there are seasons in this church, and I can, I can document them over the last 15 years, and there are prime time seasons, From mid-August, when our college students return back to campus, and everyone gets back in their new normal, right? School's in session, we get back into our fall routine. From mid-August till about the middle of October, there's a two-month period that this church will swell in size. People get back into their routines before the holidays come and and a bunch of stuff takes off. That's a a season we will swell. We'll also, from mid-January till Easter, every year see some of the largest attendances we have every year we bang our heads on the ceiling and then we drop down not as far as we were but we drop down a little bit if you look from mid-August to mid-October and then you look from mid-January till Easter you'll come in this service at 915 or 1045 you'll have trouble finding a seat for a family of four now you may look around today and go oh look there's a whole section in the middle because we know the real Christians cap the end right and won't sit up front, right? Okay, I'm just being mean. All joking aside. We have, and this is not made up. I've had conversations with people that have been watching for us. Five of the last seven weeks, we've had families come in during second or third hour, families of four or more, who tried to find a seat and turned around and left. Now, these are not people. I'm not making this up. These aren't people who were coerced by their friends to come to church. They got up on their own. They got dressed and drove way out in the middle of nowhere, came on our property because they wanted to be connected with the body of Christ that day, and we didn't have a space for them. Yeah, they may have showed up late. They didn't know you needed to come an hour and a half to get a parking spot. They didn't know. (laughs) It wasn't their fault. But I look at that and go, this isn't a made-up someone who we imagine sitting home right now who we're going to just convince to come to church. These are people who tried. And we've concluded it's not okay to not do anything. Nor do we just want to do something to do something. See, this isn't about Christ Church of Orinoco becoming bigger. This is about taking every opportunity God gives us to please him by presenting the gospel because we enjoy our God, don't we? We're calling this vision generations. Generations it will make sense in just a moment. It's for the current generation that exists in our midst and for the generations that will come because of our testimony the generations that will exist when we're all gone. I asked the elders this. We've had a conversation for the past nine months. You look at our, our leadership of our church. It's 50 years old and plus. And we're saying, who's going to be protecting and feeding and caring for this church family 15 years from now? We believe that we need to invest not only in this generation, but the generations to come. So we are going to call this Generations Campaign, our principles are two, planting and building on our engagement in the gospel. We're going to use two biblical words, planting, creating something where it didn't exist, and building on things that already are in place. We have four initiatives, four principles behind this as part of our vision. I'm going to unveil this to you today, but don't panic. If it's a fire hose and all you did was get wet, We're going to talk about this slowly over the next few weeks, and there's even materials you'll pick up today that'll help explain it. Let me tell you the two things that we feel it's very important that we uh, plant. Number one, we want to establish a place to launch church plants in Japan. If you've been with us, you know that we have a strong partnership with Mustard Seed Christian uh, Network, which plants churches in Japan. Uh, In fact, two of our young men who were born and raised in this church, uh, married young ladies, in fact, one of the young ladies is from this church as well, are in Japan right now planting and ministering to people. Japan is the second largest unchurched people group in the world. There's a need and there's an opportunity. Jay Greer, who's over there, told me that the average size evangelical church in Japan is 30 people. To my understanding, all four churches in the Mustard Seed Network are over 100 They're mega churches over there, and they still don't have enough room and space, and we want to invest in what they're doing for the generation that lives today and for their generations that will follow them until Jesus comes back. The second thing we want to uh, plant is we want to plant a Thursday night worship service here on our campus. We want to reach a large portion of our community who, for whatever reason, will not and do not come on the weekends. Maybe they work, maybe they don't know Jesus, maybe they would never return back to church the way they grew up going to church. And we see this as a church plant. To do something out here on Thursday nights that's so unique that unchurched people would feel not to be threatened, but invited by you to come with them to something different that speaks to their need, exposes the lie, and introduces them to the hope of the gospel. For the generation that exists and for the generations that will follow us, Then we want to build. We want to remodel our children's ministry space. One of the things I learned about this church when I did its history was it always has, and I give you my word, we always will invest in our children first. That's a generational investment that we must do, both in our homes and in our programming. And so we want to remodel our children's ministry space. If you're new to this building, if you walked right out these back doors and everybody took a right, we call that foyer that goes all the way down I-44. You you get the reference, okay? (laughs) And if you want to take a time warp, walk down I-44 all the way to the south end of the building, and you'll go from 2011 to 1998 to 1984, and you'll end up way back when Jesus was here, way on the far south end. (laughs) It's a generational tour through the decades of this church. Well, our children's area is currently in the third worship center we had here, the one we were in before we moved to this. Some of you remember that. It needs to be remodeled. It needs to be made safer, and it needs to be repositioned for children's ministry. And we're going to make that investment. I have the elders' authority to tell you this. We're going to do that whether this church shows up financially and in support of it or not. Why? Because it needs to be done. We're going to start this in January and hope to have it completed in September for the rollout of fall programming. If you volunteer in that area, you take your kids down in their area, no need to say thank you. We heard you. And we're responding to what parents have shared with us. The fourth thing we want to do is construct a new worship theater on our campus. Now, this it will be something that takes a little more explanation. Because of primetime season, when people come in, when we swell to the capacity and beyond, our 815 and 1045 services during these primetimes are well over 80%, which is why it feels like even though you can see scattered seats, there's not really a, a place for a family of four or five to come in and sit down together. And that's important that we're hospitable and provide good places. So what we want to do is build a new facility to the north. That's to my left, right out here in the parking lot. We would run this foyer and extend this foyer all the way out to the other student ministry building so in bad weather, people can go from building to building and not fight the, the weather. We want to have a new cafe, which would be down by this theater. And provide a place so this whole I44 would grow, and people could fellowship and hang out together, because we're three services. We want people to have time together. We want to do this so that during our 915 and 10:45 service hours, we will have a simultaneous worship service going on in that room as well as in here. It's a part of our vision. A lot of people have come up and said, "Have you thought about this, and have you thought about this?" And there's a white paper available for you, if you're interested, as to why we chose this and not some of the other options. Because we have thought about it. We have prayed. And what we realize is we can't simply say, well, this is what we are. Because then unsaved people don't get the opportunities we got. So we just don't want to do something. But we certainly don't want to do nothing. And so, because of that, we're excited about this. We believe that if you would support this financially and help us get this done, that this building would help this this congregation grow and our impact in the community grow to such a point that our other areas, children's area, uh, early childhood, all of those could could have ample space for that growth. So let me stop. We're not asking you to blindly follow us. And we know from some conversations we've had, there are some people who don't agree with certain parts of our vision. And we're open, as we pray through that, to have God speak into that. You know, some have concluded that this is a luxury item. That Some of the things we're doing would be nice if we did it, but we don't need to do it. I think a luxury item is heated seats in an SUV. <laughs> Especially in Missouri, that's ridiculous. But this isn't a luxury item. I don't know how we can look at people who want to be with us and be discipled and taught who have to walk away because there's not enough space for them to simply say, I got my chair, you get yours. We believe that this can help us as a tool accomplish our bigger vision of discipleship. Vision isn't cheap, though. It's easy to dream it. It's easy to write it on a whiteboard. It's even easier to stand on stage and tell you what we think we ought to do. But we realize that God is going to have to draw this whole congregation together sacrificially for this to happen. We're going to be asking for more from you. So if that's threatening, I want to warn you in advance. We will be asking for more time. We're going to be asking some of you to leave Sunday mornings and go to Thursday nights so you can serve the people of our community and invite them to come with you. It'll change your routine. We're going to ask some of you to serve there and some of you who don't serve anywhere to serve on Sundays to replace those folks that are going to Thursdays. We're going to ask for you to use your your talents. For some of you, it's time to start serving. It's time to start engaging what God wired you to do for the growth of the kingdom, to build on what he's doing. And then we're definitely going to be asking for treasures because we can't financially fit this in our budget. This is going to take a sacrifice. And we're asking that you as a church would examine your hearts and ask, would you sacrifice for this? So we're going to be asking for more and more and more. We're not going to ask for more than you can do, but we are going to ask more of you. I want to mention that we'll be reviewing this vision slowly but surely over the next two weeks. So if I just totally wiped you out with all this information, don't panic. We'll have plenty of time to talk. Are we as a church committed to opening up opportunities to expose the lie and to offer the hope of Jesus Christ? Historically, this church has always done so. It's got an amazing story. The elders are unanimously committed toward this. They believe that this vision can be done by this church with God's blessing. And I just need to tell you, my family is willing to sacrifice for this too. There are parts of it that scare me, and there are parts of it that challenge me. But at the end of the day, when I see the needs and the indicators that there are people who need to know the gospel, I'll say to myself, God, if you want me to do this, just show me what you want me to do. And that's what we're going to ask you to do today. Pray about the vision. Ask God what he might have you do. Seek him out in that. If there are questions, come talk to any of us. We are open to discussion because we believe God's going to move this church together or he's got something else in store for us. But what we see in front of us, we think he's calling us to do. So will you pray and seek how we together can expose the lie and be the church God called us to be? Let's stand together.